Hey everybody, Tyree here with Before I Forget, along with Kevin. Say hey, Kevin. Hey everybody. And here we are. It's been a minute. It's been a minute. It's been a couple weeks. I almost yeah. forgot um, how, to, how to do this. It's been so long. <clears throat> I even said hey everybody and I hey Kevin, and apparently that's my fucking tagline. So. It threw me off. Uh, by the way, the You're music welcome. you guys are hearing right now is straight from the 80s. It's uh, probably the most bitching shit. Like, imagine we just uh, robbed a bank and everything worked out and we're driving away in the sunset. This is the music that I'm going for with this kind of music. So there you go. I can barely hear it on my end, man, but to me, it just reminded me of like GTA. Oh, that too. Okay. So we are just sitting here talking, but we also have a guest here that is waiting in the wings introduce our guest please okay so listen everybody um we usually we usually say the words today we have a special guest and um sometimes we mean it sometimes we don't just kidding we always mean it but today i i mean it um extra because like this dude really is special to me um he was my mentor when i came into the army reserves uh my drill sergeant mentor he was the only other 11 bravo only other infantry drill sergeant when i got uh, that was in the unit when i got there scared the shit out of me um <laughs> Because, you know, I was a brand new, uh, 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 just left active duty, E5, you know, come back from Iraq. I come into the reserves not knowing a, a fucking thing about it. And then this guy's just like with his blue disc and his EIB on his uniform and his airborne wings. And I'm just like, damn it, I got to deal with another one of these guys. It's been four, you know, five years. And and then uh, ended up being... Um, like I said, uh, my, my drill sergeant mentor um, coached me through a lot of stuff and um, eventually becoming uh, a good friend of mine and somebody that I have looked up to and admired over the years. Um, his name is Andrew Parrish. Say hi. Well, hello, and thank you for that uh, not scathing introduction there, Kevin. <laughs> um, yeah, I, uh, I'm glad to be here, guys. Thanks for having me on. It'll be good to talk. <clears throat> I should have mentioned that you are now retired. Um, which is why you have the glorious beard on your face, which, man. Glorious. So almost jealous. There. You're so almost jealous. there, buddy. Yep, I retired last year. I uh, did three years active duty, um, followed by, I can't do the math, what, six, 15, 16 years of reserve time. So, no, longer than that, because I got out of 22 years. So, but, yep. Yeah, see, that's why you're infantry, because you can't do math. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Can't, can't do math in public. Right on. <laughs> so before we get into it, we have questions we ask everybody, and we have to ask them, uh, why exactly did you join the Army? Oh, boy. There's uh, multiple reasons. Um, one was really to prove something to myself. I was 17. I was always kind of a skinny kid, kind of a nerdy kid. Um, I played baseball in high school, but I was never really strong athletic. So I, I really wanted to prove that to myself that I could. And uh, that's also the reason I went infantry at the time. Also, although I did, I was good at academics. I, I was succeeding as far as school went. Um, the military did offer, you know, the GI bill it gave me an opportunity to go to college later. And I, I knew that if I went to college at that point in time, that I would probably waste it. So I thought it was best to, do do something else i've always kind of had a a calling for service to others and i thought that all those things considered that was my best option what year did you come in uh 2000 yeah so i mean like you so you were in during 9 11 like and so you were you were stationed at drum right correct 
Where? So hang on. Let me let me try to do my math because I was in Kosovo. So you were you in Kosovo when nine eleven happened? No, no, we were actually in uh, Fort Polk, JRTC, training up for our deployment to Kosovo. We were scheduled to leave in November, so we were there. And it's kind of funny because, well, nothing about nine eleven is really funny, I suppose. But uh, we thought it was part of our training, like because we were in the box, we were you know cut off from outside life, and then all of a sudden we have to put on full battle rattle while we're on on this training mission and at all times. And we're like, this must just be part of the simulation or something. And then they start pulling people in from the field to call their families. Cause well, we were stationed in New York. So some people had some family close by and it was like, Oh wait, this, this is real. And I think it was, it was about a week after nine 11 happened that I finally saw footage because we, we got tasked to go guard a, an airstrip you know, where aviation had set up. And of course we've been sleeping in the woods and stuff. And, um, but they had cots, tents, and they actually had a, a television with that army network on there. So we were actually able to see it for the first time, like a weekend. Yeah, it was, it was pretty well. That what is, was the, that's crazy. Hold on. Because we were in basic training when that was happening. We watched it live basically. And to oh, yeah. to hear, to actually see the visuals of all that terrible shit that happened a week later, that's, that's heavy. That's different. Yeah, well, we didn't know what to think. Like I said, it was uh, caught us completely by surprise. We're wondering if we're suddenly not going to Kosovo. It's, you know, it was it was pretty wild. Um, so what was like? What was like? I'm trying, I'm trying to formulate my question in my brain. Um, so I mean, prior to 9/11, before you go down to Fort Polk for JRTC, you're stationed up at Fort Drum, and the army is a certain way. And then 9/11 happens, y'all eventually return back to to Drum. Like what, what was that? What was the transition like there? Like what was going on in your day-to-day life? Like prior to and after 9-11, like what was going on there? The main thing I remember is the gate guards. Um, and keep in mind too, because we were on pre-mob status, uh, we weren't getting off base a whole lot in between our, in between our training mode to Fort Polk. And then again, before we left, we did get to go on like a week of block leave. But I, I, mostly I just remember the airports being way different than I'd ever seen them before. Um, but I'm trying to think because coming back from drum was when it were, when I really noticed the biggest difference because by then all the gate guards and the, the security had been in place for a little bit longer. And so it was it was more similar to us being on our camp in Kosovo than it was prior to that. That makes sense. Yeah. Well, I, I know. So I'm not tired. I don't know if it was for you or not, but like I graduated three days after nine 11, but like when nine 11 happened, um, they took a lot of, uh, trainees, gave them M 16s and they were like extra layers of security down there at Fort Benning. And, um, I don't even remember if they had magazines. <laughs> like these guys were just out there with, with, uh, basically clubs, you know, <laughs> just standing there. And so they were like these multiple checkpoints. So I remember like when my, when, you know, we graduated, we got family day or whatever, and we had to come back on post and going through these different layers of security, you see it like the, the first gate and then so on and so on and so on. It was just all these different checks. My family said it was kind of the same thing. It was a big hassle getting in, uh, on getting on post. <clears throat> um, yeah. Same. Which is crazy. It was, um, was it, we had guys on the, on the road and they were armed. Uh, they had five bullets each. Yeah. 
So that was that. But I, you know what? I'm going to add a different question to our whole thing. What was your personal life during this whole thing? Like uh, we always ask, like, yeah, how was the the deployment? How was that day? But what was going on in your own personal life during all that? Um. So I was still fairly. I got to my duty station in January of that year, and so I was really just starting to fit in, make some friends start getting around town and, you know, having a little group to hang out with. So it was, it was very positive, honestly. Um, I mean, at the time I was only 18 years old and still, you know, young, green behind the ears as far as life goes. But I mean, we trying to meet girls, trying to party, you know, have fun. And then, cause we knew even, even prior to all that, you know, we knew we were getting deployed. So we were trying to make the most of it and things like that. So, uh, does that answer your question? Oh yeah, yeah, that hit the nail okay. on the head. That's what we needed <clears throat> to know, man. <clears throat> no, and that's that's pretty infantry, man. You're yeah, about, <laughs> you're talking about like I'm, we're going to go out and find. It. Well, obviously, we want to find your 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 group, right? Your people, and then next thing you know, where do I get drunk and where do I find girls? Yeah, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know what I mean. And you're you're up at Drum, so you're like uh, upstate New York. And you got there in January, like super cold. Yeah, miserable. Yeah. Like there's a reason why the units in Alaska go to drum for Arctic weather training. Yeah. Yeah. It was, uh, it was a, a shock to the system for sure. I mean, I do remember cause I left, I left Benning in December. I actually went on Christmas leave from reception there at drum and I left Georgia with a leather jacket on and jeans and then this tiny little shitty airport we landed at and, Watertown, we actually had to walk across the tarmac in like two, three feet of snow. And I'm just like questioning every life choice I've made up to that point. <laughs> like, what the hell did I get myself into? And uh, we immediately get issued our cold weather gear like the next day I'm there. And since I didn't have any money because I was a broke ass private, that's like all I wore for the first week was just my Gore Tex and my boots, even off duty. Like, it was, <laughs> it was brutal. <laughs> yeah, and that's how they know that there goes the new privates <clears throat> wearing their army issued gear. Mm-hmm. Um, At the bar, okay, yeah, <laughs> right. Trying to pick up chicks, mm-hmm. wearing an you army like shirt. Gore-Tex? Yeah, you like this? You yeah. dig this shit? What's your name? <laughs> um, I, surely it's work for somebody out there. Um, okay, so when you went to Kosovo, um, let's see here, you deployed to Kosovo in October. Uh, November, yeah. Yeah. So you were there on the rotation prior to me and Tyree being there. So he and I got there in April of 2002. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know for us, like, so he and I, we're, we're in basic training. We show to our unit. I show up to the unit like, you know, three weeks, two and a half weeks after 9-11. So I don't know anything about Garrison Army from that perspective uh, per se. And then we're just thinking – we're going straight to wherever the war is going to be. And at this point it's Afghanistan and we get word that like, Oh, actually we're doing, we're going to Kosovo next year. I'm like, what the fuck is Kosovo? I never heard of it. And, um, you know, so you, you, you hear, we had some older guys in the unit who had been there for the initial, um, set off or whatever in, in the Balkan mountains, um, in 98, 99, and just hearing the stories that they had about what Kosovo was like and how it was kind of an active zone. And then, so you, in my mind, I'm like, okay, we're going to this place 
the third world country. They have guns. Um, could be scary. Think, could bad things could happen. Now we have a war going on somewhere else on the globe um, with similar types of people because there there are uh, Muslim people that live in Kosovo and you know that's who bombed the. I, that's not who bombed. You know the people who bombed the trade center were anyway. Y'all get what I'm saying. So yeah. it was just kind of like as a young soldier, like what you know what this is my thought process. Kosovo was scary. What was that like? going over there in November, right right after 9-11. So real similar to what you're thinking, but I, I do remember there was a bunch of questions about why was that so important? You know, well, you know, because a lot of, especially from drums, because of tie-up tempo, a lot of units were just immediately deploying to Afghanistan. And so it was kind of wondering like, okay, so is this still really that important? And then of course there's, you know, your fear because you do hear the stories, you do hear you know, be on guard. You never know what's going to happen and blah, blah, blah. And, uh, and we get there and, and when we see it, we were in Bettina. Um, so a fairly small town, bigger than the village, but, you know, definitely not a huge city. And there, there was definitely still some remnants of like the bombings that the air force did and probably that they did to each other and stuff. So some of the buildings were still all scrapped out. So initially on our first few, patrols and, and guard duties and things, you know, we were really on guard, really kind of on edge. But after a while, you start talking to the local populace. I'd say probably about a, about a month in after our normal rotations, um, you know, we, we, were, we were really able to calm down. And, but we still kind of questioned, you know, what was the importance compared to what just happened to the U.S.? Um, and then we were also kind of wondering, you know, are they ever, are they going to transition us? You know, are we going to be on call? Cause there were some rumors about that kind of stuff going on. Um, but really after that first month, it was, it was fairly easy deployment. And I mean, you guys were there. So, and I know you and I have talked about it before and I mean, for deployment and what they are, you know, it was, it was not a bad time. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. Kosovo, I mean, aside from being super boring, was pretty. I mean, yeah, it was pretty anticlimactic because I do remember going over there with with this like idea that like, oh shit, man, like bad things might happen. And then I think the worst thing that happened was the power steering going out on a Humvee and the wheels locking turned to the right. Well, the the trail turned to the left, and we ended up being stuck on the Serbian border for three days. <laughs> and I do remember, I do remember me and uh, and and my buddy Billy Jack and um, good old Sergeant Winchester. Stuck up on this, like we're like 100 meters from the border. And in my mind, at, at night, I'm sitting there clutching my M16. And I'm like, okay, I've heard stories about the Serbians coming across the border and stealing soldiers. I never heard those stories. Like that never actually happened. You know what I mean? And I'm like, I'm going to get kidnapped and yanked across this border. You know what I mean? It's, it's a whole thing. But I mean, I, that was me doing it to myself. And the whole time uh, you could have been doing fucking s'mores, sitting here tripping out about fucking getting kidnapped. <laughs> Like for for me, once we realized like, uh, all right, we're going to Kosovo. It's not the normal. It's not w- what the world is doing right now. I figured it was more of a training thing at that point. Um, really pay attention to what we're doing. Yeah, you can slack off with these little patrols that we're doing around, like these little fucking shitbag towns. Got to take it serious because literally, you know, in a couple months, we're going to be going to the big show and, and it's going to be big and it's going to be a lot more different than this. So, you know, I took that shit serious. But at the same time, I knew like 
it's not that bad. Like we can t- at the end of it, we weren't even wearing vests. We were just walking around in fucking patrol caps. So you know, take that how you want it. But I, I do remember that uh, that coming down. So like we because we used to walk around. We had to cha- trade. Well, back then we had our flak jackets, and I'm pretty sure you had them too. And uh, we traded before we deployed. We traded our flak jackets for the the, uh, the new body armor, the IBA with the plates in the front and the back. Yeah, and I'd be like, "Oh man, this thing's so cool! I can't wait to wear this out and you know do army things in it." We didn't have any Molly gear on it though, so we're using the old LBV or LCE, the load carrying equipment or load bearing vests. And we have like the suspenders and pistol belt and the the, the the three mag pouch and a three mag pouch, and you know what I mean. And we're walking around doing these patrols, looking like we're like patrolling the Cold War. Um, and that's kind of what we were doing, right? Because that's that part of the world uh, we were in. And uh, after like the first couple of weeks, you're just like, okay, this body armor is, it's not pointless, but I don't need it. It's not necessary. I think we heard like one foreign gunshot the whole time. And it was in celebration. Uh, this father fired off his AK during his daughter's wedding. And we had to go arrest the guy. So that felt pretty bad, but you know, it, it was to the point. Was, yeah. When we, when we finally got the word, I think it was the last month on, on our six and a half month deployment. Hey, guess what, guys? No body armor. You can go out in patrol caps because we also were wearing the Kevlar's too. Patrol caps and vests. And we're like, and then like four days later, we get on an airplane to come back to Germany. Um, but yeah. So you go to Kosovo, you hang out there, uh, you get to see the beautiful Balkan mountains, and you come home to drum, um, knowing that the war in Afghanistan is happening. Um, this is what early mid 2002 what's the thought process there in the unit and with you so the unit actually pretty quickly after we got back got um i guess pre-warned or a warning order or whatever for uh iraq and at that point i had a year left and we think they sent me to air assault school so i got to do that and then then my company commander was wanting me to go to ranger and I, I i was down for it i wanted to go but he's like all right well you got to re-enlist i said i don't want to do that and he said okay well then you're going to be my rto and you're going to be my training nco and if you're not re-enlisting then you know we're just going to kind of pull you back so you can train folks up for this iraq rotation and i think they left about four months after i ets so it got it was a big change. We had a lot of uh, turnover in people ETS and new soldiers showing up, even uh, new NCOs, basically a whole new chain of command just in that year. So pretty much all of our squad leaders, platoon sergeants took on new assignments or got out after Kosovo. And so we had a whole new rotation of people coming in that I never really got to know since I was working at the company level at that point. Um, but it was, it was getting pretty serious for them. I do remember that. And I mean, some of the field exercises we do, um, it got a lot more, you know, urban, urban oriented. Uh, I remember a lot more mounted training than we had done in the past. We were still doing a lot of the Vietnam era and, you know, basic, basic training, seven dash eight style stuff um, up until that point. So, yeah, it, it changed quite a bit just in that, just in that year. I remember that. Yeah, it's it's kind of when we when we got back from Kosovo, we had word that we were going to go in 
to Iraq almost immediately. Like we were, we, we thought we were going to be a, um, a part of the initial invasion. And we were supposed to be, we were supposed to come in from the North, uh, through Turkey. We even had our Advon team out there, um, <clears throat> getting the site prepped and everything. And then Turkey ultimately ended up saying, no, never mind. We don't, we don't want any involvement in this. And so those guys came back and we got <clears throat> a whole year off. Um, I say a year off, we were in the field constantly and then ended up deploying, um, in 2004, as opposed to the initial invasion in 2003. Um, but yeah, it was just kind of the same thing for us. So even, even, you know, when we, when we got spun up for that first deployment, right. When we were supposed to go in for the initial invasion, it was, it was the same thing. They did a stop loss, stop movement. And, but we saw a lot of like leadership change. We saw a lot of positional change, you know, people PCSing or ETSing and getting these new soldiers in. And then, well, that that gets canceled, and then we get word that we're going to go in for the second wave, and so it was the same process again. So, like the people that were being stop lost were now allowed to rotate out, um, and then we got a new influx of people. But yeah, it was it was definitely an interesting time for us too, um, which is about the same. Um, things did be a little more serious. There were periods where we had like what was it like twenty four hour recall where we had to be twenty five hour recall, four hour recall. Um, like I said a lot of time in the field, um, out there training for the Cold War, yeah, chasing down bimps. You know what I mean? Um, we had the, the Apaches were were dressed uh, um, as as hindies, the old Russian helicopters. <laughs> um, just getting mopped by those dudes. Um, so you you ETS from active duty and you come into the reserves. Was there? Did you have a break? I did have a break. I had a six month break. Um, my initial intention was to start school, go to school, get my degree, and then come back in with a commission. Um, I was, you know, we all start these things with the best of intentions, but yeah, my second semester in is when um, my daughter's mom got pregnant. So I really had to weigh the whole, what kind of parent do I want to be? You know, do I want to be on active? Do I want to? So that's essentially why I ended up staying in the reserves after I joined was, um, to be, you know, more present for my daughter. Um, but yeah, I was about six months after I ETS, I, I missed it and I wanted back in and I found the, the training unit, you know, the 95th division and really liked what they had going on. And I thought it would be a good experience, good for leadership, you know, in the event that I did go get my commission, which fell through, but. Here we are. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm pretty glad you didn't because, come on, man. I mean, I can see you being an officer, but I don't want to see you being an officer. I, I can't anymore. I can't anymore. No. Mm. Well, not now. <laughs> um, what, was so it, you, what was it like, uh, the uh, the feeling, the, the transition from active duty to reserve? What was the, the feeling when you first get into the unit? Was it like, okay, this is a weird thing, or these people are doing weird stuff? Why are they not doing what they should be doing? Or, okay, this is a little bit better than I thought it was. What was going on there? Uh, surprisingly, the when I first joined, it was uh, it was pretty squared away, all things considered. Now, the actual company had just mobilized to Fort Sill, so the vast majority of them weren't there. I mean, granted, a, a drill sergeant company isn't large. I think it max we were like 24 people but uh so the only people that were there were my first sergeant training and co 
a senior drill sergeant and two of us as candidates. But when we showed up there, um, we were still, I think my second drill with them, we actually did the, the end of end of cycle training annual certification that we had to do, which meant we went out to see our battalion in Tulsa and actually do, you know, hands-on skill level one tasks. So, you know, not too long after that, we did our CLS research. Um, so believe it or not, it was actually quite a bit like I was used to. Um, it wasn't until a few years later that it became different. And that was actually a more difficult transition than it was initially. <laughs> how did it, how would you say it became different? Um, I think once they started, so uh, around the time that I was getting out is when things like AKO were introduced um, and the the mail system. And so then everything started, you know, all of our personnel stuff, all of our records started being kept more online. They switched to a more online type paperwork documentation system. And that just kept transitioning. They kept adding more to it throughout my the rest of my career. So it went from It went from feeling like we were doing like actual training and tasks to, oh, we have to do the paperwork to show that we were doing these tasks. And it really became more of a, at least in our unit as an NCO and, and then an acting training NCO, it really felt like it was more of a check the box kind of atmosphere. So I wasn't able to actually do a whole lot of the hands-on stuff that I enjoyed doing and wanted to do um, the actual training and the learning and you know it was it was a lot of learning new computer systems or you know teaching people how to use them or doing ncoers or making sure everybody's records are uploaded all that kind of stuff so i think that transition was harder than the actual transition to reserves initially i can definitely and, attest to that because the same um Joining the reserves, uh, I, it was a lot later. This is back maybe in 2007 or 8. So, six. Six? Oh, wow. Yeah. So the the systems were already in place, I guess, but uh, yes. doing all these NCOERs and we can't leave and can't go home until all these things are done. Like, when we have a whole month to do this. What are these other people doing? Like, it, it to me at that point, None of it made any sense. Like, okay, we're we're just here. I'm lit, just getting paid to sit on my ass while the NCOs, because I was an E4 at the time, and then I made NCO uh, sergeant. But it was just a waste of time. It was lit. We were literally doing nothing. We would go to Sizzler for lunch, and that was like the the highlight of drill. And we were getting paid for it, but I mean, I felt bad. Like, man, we're not doing shit. Except yeah. NCOERs and ratings and also the bullshit that no one cares about. Yeah, and it was just. Uh, were were you? What kind of unit were you in, Diary? Uh, I was a part of the ninety fifth, but it was uh, what is it, the the one hundred fourth. We were out of Pasadena, so it was. Uh, oh, okay. It was a it was a what they call a double golf unit. So mm-hmm. we're sergeant trainers. Um, gotcha. But so a similar job to what we had though. So it wasn't a line. Yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. And yeah, and that's, and that was the biggest frustration was, especially as a trainer and, you know, cause I I love doing that. I love being out with Joe. I love training uh, some of the local troops, but we got to do that so rarely that, you know, I mean, 
we couldn't go out in the field and even train ourselves. You know, we didn't have facilities. We didn't have the, the manpower. We didn't have supply. Yeah. It was. Yeah. yeah. We had some, we had some, we had a couple hardcore NCOs that were still there. So we would still do road marches, but we would road march through Pasadena. Um, if you had a if you had a paintball gun, you can carry that and act like that was a, a weapon. If not, you're carrying a stick. I don't know. Imagine doing that shit now. Imagine going out there and going on a ruck with a fucking even a paintball gun out there in Pasadena yeah. right now. Like as Camo. silly as that sounds, those dudes needed it because it was a bunch of office dudes man they needed to get out from behind that desk and 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 walk a little bit i mean we we did as many skill level one tasks as we could um for these basically 42 alphas and uh you know god bless those dudes but i mean they don't get to train as much as us infantry guys would back when we were in you know so it's funny to do ambushes in the (laughs) <laughs> for training on on these fucking guys, because we would even go to we uh, say paintball. We would go to a paintball park and and we would train. We had we had really good training for for what it was. Mm-hmm. So I mean, you it, it, you make uh, what you can with the time, and uh, they did a pretty good job. So hats off to those dudes back then. Yeah, yeah. When I came into the unit, man, like uh, I remember my first drill there. Right, I I, I was. You know, like I said, I was four years on active and deployed to Kosovo, deployed to Iraq, and then IR for a year, coming to the unit. And um, we had a class, um, IED, um, I, IED identification, all right? So improvised explosive device identification. And it was a PowerPoint on a computer. And um, I just remember them going through the slides, and I think it was Mac given the class, actually. And, and, uh, he was like, okay, or whoever was going to, it may have been Mac, it may not have been, but it was like, you know, like going through these slides and like, it was like these pictures that were just taken. And these are like fresh from, you know, the last couple of years of being in combat for various units. And it was, this is uh, potentially uh, not an IED. This is probably not an IED. And there's all these random pictures of things. And I just remember thinking like, those are all IEDs. We saw IEDs like that all over Iraq. Like what kind of slideshow is it? Who's teaching this stuff? And I remember being a little angsty <laughs> because funny. I was being taught what an IED wasn't by people that had never seen them. And I remember, I remember having a little bit of like, um, I don't know, uh, you know, like my uh, uh, big headed, I guess you could say, um, compared to a lot of you guys that were there. And um, and that's man, like. When you come off of active duty and you hear all these things, because the reason I came into the the, the drill sergeant unit is because I was like, "Fuck, man, the reserves." I I know all about the reserves. I heard all about them while I was on active duty from people that have never been in the reserves and don't know anything about it either. You know what I mean? And so, mm-hmm. like, I've developed this opinion of of reservists and national guardsmen that is based on absolutely nothing, pure conjecture, rumor. <clears throat> and so I'm like, okay, well, if I'm going to come into the reserves, the best place to be is probably a drill sergeant unit because, like, I remember my drill sergeants; they were squared away. So surely this is going to be the same thing. And then I remember getting these classes and if I'm like, come on, man, am I being let down? You know what I mean? Did I fuck up? Did I come into the wrong unit? But then I just, you know, it, it was it was me being young and dumb and immature, not to quote that one song that says that, those words, that order. Um, but like, it was just me being immature. Like I, you know, I got to, after being in the unit for a while and getting to know you guys, I'm like, 
oh, okay, well, these are just classes that are sent down, they're mandatory training, and, you know, they don't make these classes, you know, just because Mac is saying this is not an IED doesn't mean that it may not actually be, you know, I mean, it was a whole thing. Yeah. But it took me a while adjusting to it, and it did. Because uh-huh. um, you're right, though, when I, when I came into unit in 06, there wasn't a lot of training. We would go on small rucks. Um, we weren't going over to Chaffee very much. We weren't really hitting up ranges unless we were going to Camp Gruber. Um, going to Tulsa like two or three, four times a year to battalion drills. But it was a lot of sitting around and not doing much. And and I think it was, you know, our, our hands were tied a lot. And it, 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 that definitely got worse. Because you think about like you go to drill for two days, right? For po- people that don't know how the reserves and National Guard work, you go to drill for two days, Saturday and Sunday, sometimes three days, sometimes four days, just kind of depends. But you show up on Saturday and you might go do a PT. You might have, you might go do exercise in the morning. Maybe not. Um, you might go play ultimate Frisbee or basketball, <laughs> or you just don't do anything. You just show up. Um, some units show up at like six in the morning, um, seven, eight o'clock in the morning. Some units just show up at nine in the morning. And then that day they typically sit around, they give classes, right? We have our mandatory annual training, like the um, sexual harassment or equal opportunity um, classes of that nature. And more often than not, they're just classes. Okay, guys, so you know you don't need to rape people, right? Okay, awesome. <laughs> um, the, everybody, did you sign the sign-in sheet? Mm. Okay, cool. So that class is concluded. Okay, so EO, um, don't be a racist. Okay, so everyone's good there? Okay, cool. So go ahead and sign this. And that's the class. You know what I mean? And then the rest of the time you're sitting there, everybody's on their phones, um, bringing in tablets, bringing in their computers, getting caught up on TV shows. You know what I mean? Oh, this is my time away from the family, so I'm going to get caught up on Family Guy or whatever the shit. And it really does become like this like wasted time. Um, and it really does. I, I can see a lot of like National Guard people and Reserve people being like, why am I even doing this? What's the point? That um, is wild, man. Like our shit, everyone who is in the unit, regardless of what rank you were, you're going to go to the, the sergeant trainers course. Um, and that's a big thing to have just personally. So you can use that on the outside. Like they sent everybody to that every drill, almost PT test. Um, they compared to what y'all were doing, man, we were working our asses off. Now I'm thinking about it. I mean, we still did those stupid ass yeah. EO complaint bullshit classes and all that kind of stuff. Well, but, I was going to say, man, like fucking, we still did PT as candidates. We still did PT tests every weekend and I fucking hated it, man. Cause I hate, first of all, the army physical fitness test, the old APFT, the three event tests, right? Put three, two minutes of pushups, two minutes of sit-ups and a, and a two mile run hated it there's never been a time where i've taken that test and i was like you know what i'm excited to be here not once not fucking once but these guys and i'm talking about you it's like my my drill sergeant mentor and all these other drill sergeants that i looked up to slash was afraid of was like okay you're gonna go out there and do this apft and you're gonna do it on saturday and if you don't do well on it you're gonna come back in on sunday you're gonna do it again I'm like motherfucker dude when i came off of irr i was not doing pt when i was out of the army you know, hell no, nobody is. When I came into the reserves, guess what I was also not doing? PT. And so, like, taking the APFT every drill weekend twice, <clears throat> I was angry about it. I hate it. I was very salty about it. I mean, the, no, no, when, I, when I say, like, we you know, we weren't doing kind of training, like, these guys were still making us do things. I remember you and Mac 
making me uh was it Holloman and the other Johnson stand at the front of the reserve center and scream the drill sergeant creed over and over and over while all of you guys were in the drill sergeant office with the door closed at the other end of the building. <clears throat> you remember do you remember having us do that? Yeah. Yeah. Cold blood. And yeah, <laughs> just screaming, I am a drill sergeant, blah, you know what I mean? And like and somebody would open the door, we can't hear you, and then slam it. But I learned the creed. You know yeah. what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um but yeah. So um the whole different thing. The reserves and guard, like they could, they could stand a little bit of restructuring here and there. I will say, um, we recorded not too long ago, earlier this year, with the 95th Division Commander, mm-hmm. um, General Quillen, and um, it's it's amazing to me. I've and I, I've met her several times, and um, I've heard her speak in various um, scenarios, situations. And we talk about all the stuff that happens at the unit level and all the things that we're kind of like frustrated with. Right. And when we talk to her, you know, know, what she says on the show and what she says in front of soldiers, I truly believe because it's consistent. She says the same thing and she, and she says it with passion. Like she says it like she gives a shit. And so you may, you know, it leads you to believe that she does. And you know, when you, when, when, when she hears some of this stuff, she's like, what is, is that how you guys are being made to feel at your level? Like that we only care about metrics, that we only want a sign a sign-in sheet for Sharp and EO. Is that what you are getting? Because that's not what we're wanting. We're wanting soldiers that actually genuinely give a fuck about their job and being in the army and supporting this unit and so on and so on and so on. Um, so really there's a there's a huge disconnect there. Um, but that's a conversation um for me at another time. Mm-hmm. Um, in a co- in, in a couple of months. <laughs> That'll be but, a good uh, show. I have to ask. Again, what was your personal life during all this stuff, during this transition in life? So there's a lot of stuff for me going on. Um, Not too long after Johnson joined the unit in 06. So my daughter was born in 04. And that's when my personal life started kind of kind of going in a a weird direction. Um, me and her mom had a real bad falling out. So we had to start working on the visitation stuff. It was, you know, the whole custody battle for years and years, et cetera, et cetera. And, um, I started drinking a lot and all the time. And then I ended up losing my job in 2010, got a new job. Not too long after, I think I was unemployed for like three months. And then I actually lost that job in 2012 because I was actually drunk on the clock. And then I was unemployed, stayed home, dad, went back to school for a while and stuff didn't start getting better until about 2016. I did get custody. I got married in 2012. Um, so at that point I had a wife, a stepson and got custody of my daughter um, around 2014. So, I mean, I had a family, but yeah, it was, it was just, I was, I was starting to go down into a pretty dark place personally. So yeah, it was, it was rough. At, at what point, at what point did you realize that you started, you, you may have had a problem? If that's, um, if, if that's not a fucked up way of putting it. No, it's fine. Uh, 
probably around 2014-ish. So, and that's the other big issue that I had around that time was around 2013, 2014, I was diagnosed with PTSD and the civilian doctor and, and got put on antidepressants. And I quit drinking for with some medical assistance. I quit drinking for about a month there and then fell back into it. So I was drinking on top of these SSRIs and about two years of my life, like I, I cannot put in chronological order. Like I, I remember some events, but a lot of it's just, just mush in my brain. So, uh, but yeah, that, that was the start of me trying to get sober. And yeah, nothing stuck until about 2016. So up until then, I mean, like how often were you drinking? Oh, pretty constantly. Um, it started off, you know, pretty much every night, like back in like the 05, 06 timeframe, started off pretty much just every night. You know, I could still at that point DD for people once in a while. You know, I wouldn't have to go out to a bar and, and drink. But uh, it got to the point where I basically felt like I needed it to sleep. And then the job that I had at the time, I'm, I'm not going to drop names, but they didn't exactly have a, a really give a fuck attitude about while you're on the clock. So it was, and plus I was on second shift. So then it was just kind of, well, don't have anything else to do, but answer phone calls. Might as well pour a little vodka in my Sprite, you know? Yeah. I remember, and, you, uh, I remember you telling me about that. Yeah. 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 And, uh, I mean, hell, the place had a bar in the basement that they'd open up, you know, Fridays and Saturdays for all the employees. So it's not like it was discouraged per se, but, um, but yeah, so then it just became a bad habit of pretty much all the time. And that turned into an almost medicinal need because it got to the point where I'd say probably around 2012, 2013, where if I didn't have some in my system, I'd start going through withdrawals. And so you're talking the dry heaves, the shakes, the, if it was long enough, my hands and my feet would start seizing up and uh, hallucinations, audio and visual hallucinations if I was tired enough. Yeah, it was getting pretty wild. And that would take about between four to six hours before I'd start experiencing that kind of stuff. Really? So I couldn't even really get a full good night's sleep because I'd just wake up, you know, withdrawing. Jeez. And this whole time, I mean, like you're still attempting to function in life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, geez. I, 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 mean, I, I knew some of that, man. Cause I mean, we worked together in the army. Um, but yeah, I didn't know the, the, the hallucination part. I mean, there were, there were some instances, uh, at, at, at say drill weekend, or whatever, mm-hmm. where, um, you, uh, you know, it, we, I, it was, it was kind of like, uh, you know, is, is, is Parrish drunk? And even nobody wanted to speculate. Cause you, honestly, you didn't, you didn't smell like alcohol. Hmm. You know what I mean? I don't know how you covered that up, but, <laughs> um, it was just, cause it was really interesting to see because like you managed it well enough. And I think it, it, it came on slow enough that like the transition from, pre-alcoholic parish to parish is drunk now um like it was just like a it was it was almost a it was a weirdly like natural transition to where like when we did see you if you were drunk it was really kind of hard to pinpoint 
Hmm. Um, Why didn't you guys say anything? Like, I understand, like, you know, it's the the NCO was in charge, but what made you, Kevin, stop uh, saying something to him? Like, hey, man. Well, so, and and, and to be honest, I, I don't know that a lot of us really did have, like, conversations with him. We, we, we talked to him, but like I said, like, it was kind of hard to identify that he was drunk. Like, that was just kind of how it was. Like, he managed it well enough that, like, it just, he functioned. You know what I'm saying? Like, Paris, you functioned well yeah. doing it. And I guess that's part of becoming like a, a, a functioning alcoholic. But, but I mean, like I said, there were a few things here and there that we were like, wait a second. I think Parrish is, um, I think, I think this is not good. Um, but, and that was around the time you started, I, I think, um, seeking help and, and all of that stuff. Was there, was there a specific event or a time where you were like, I, I need to unfuck myself. Yeah, actually. Um, there were two. So the, the first one that, that got me seeking help the first, you know, prior to going to rehab where I was actually sober for about a month, I was, I had gone to Fort Knox for the LTC training and about four days in, um, they basically removed me from the training. They said, go over here. You know, obviously you're under the influence. There's an issue. You're going to go talk to the Colonel tomorrow. And, so I'm scared. I'm thinking, you know, I mean, you know, I'm going to get freaking all the article 15s and I'm going to get sent home. I'm going to get discharged and blah, blah, blah. And the Colonel, I went, I, I went and talked to him the next day and that conversation really helped me. And the reason why is because he point blank asked me if I have a problem, right? Prior to that point, there had been other people, my parents, um, my spouse and even uh do you remember first arm bowling mm -hmm. um even him and a couple other leaders in the military and just other people in my life that basically came up to me and said hey i think you have, have a problem or hey you do have a problem and that right there the difference between those two was those those all put me on the defensive and that was me basically saying no i'm fine i, I don't need help I'm, i got this blah 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 whereas when this colonel straight up asked me, do you think you have a problem? It really got me thinking, right? So that's when I was able to start processing and putting a whole bunch of stuff together. And that's when, I mean, they did end up sending me home, but it was on good graces. And uh, they put me in touch with a chaplain that I was talking to a little bit. And uh, so that right there was the big, big kicker was when I was able to start taking an introspective look at myself. So after I got sober for a little bit and then went back into my cycle, the, the main kicking point that sent me to rehab was, um, at that point, my wife had left, she was gone. Um, you know, I had lost my job already. It was, but it was when my parents showed up to my house and took Alexis, took my daughter and said, my mom basically said, you are in no shape to be a parent. And that right there was, that was my rock bottom. And that was what made me realize I didn't, I couldn't even argue. I'm like, you know what? You're right. And that was like the one thing that I prided myself on at that point in time was being a good dad. So acknowledging that I wasn't even able to do that. Yeah. I knew I needed to go get some help. That's heavy, man. Yeah, it was rough. So you, you hit the bottom. Mm -hmm. What's next? What what are we doing now? 
because that's that's a lot of stuff to deal with man the the going back on the cycle still trying to maintain some kind of how 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 was everything going for you at uh drill things like that like everyone else is thinking like man this guy might be drunk like you know you are mm-hmm. what, what what was what was going on with you while that was going on so all that i mean i was I was playing the pity card, you know, I was, you know, Oh, poor me, my life's hard. And, you know, I'm, you know, I don't, uh, and part of it too played into the whole military mentality of, and I, I know this is going to sound morbid, but I know I've talked to Kevin about this and it's not like it was, uh, it's not like it was a, basically we, none of us thought we were going to live past 30, right. Especially in a wartime army you know, being in combat arms, having already been mobilized, writing out our wills and stuff. We just kind of always thought, you know, yeah. dude, 30's old. We are not going to live past 30. So it was just kind of like, hey, I might as well facilitate this until I die on my own terms, you know, kind of thing. And uh, then I hit 30 and I was like, wait, no, I still got a lot of life ahead of me. <laughs> like, maybe this isn't the best way to do this. But, um, but at drill, like I said, I was struggling with the SSRIs and the intoxication, and I, I guess I was functioning well enough. And I always was a good soldier, and I was good at my job. Um, could have been ten times better had I been, you know, mentally coherent. But you know, I always wanted to take care of people and help them out. So as far as being like the acting training NCO, I did the job. And but it was it was I was depressed. I was anxious all the time and I just felt like I didn't have anything to hold on to really. You know, it's interesting you say that because like during that time, like you, you still were really good at your job. You know what Mm -hmm. I'm saying? It was like, it was, it was almost, so if, 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 if being in that state, you were, mm, you were outside of your mind, so to speak. So you were kind of on autopilot while you were, you know, you've alcohol and SSRIs in your system and you're just kind of coasting. Um, but you're still able to perform your duties and your functions um, to the degree that you were performing because you were doing a, you were doing a good job. Like you were even at that point, and maybe it's just maybe it says a lot about the rest of us in the unit, but like you were still one of the best soldiers in the unit. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> um, maybe we all suck. I don't know. But like because you, you still did your job. And so it's interesting for you to say that so you didn't have anything really to kind of like cling on to or or whatever, but like you would still show up and do your job um, to the best of your ability, which typically surpassed a lot of, you know, the abilities of other people in the unit. So that, that says, I think a lot about like how well you would have performed had you not been in that state during that time frame. Mm -hmm. Um, And we did see that like, you know, once you, once you did get sober and, you know, coming to the the unit, but there was an interesting transition with you then. Um, because I think you started to see more clearly and um, the army had changed so much during that time frame, from the time when you had first come in to the time when you first came into the reserves, as you got closer to retirement, that middle part, um, you know, seeing that transition and coming out of that fog, so to speak, and seeing like where the army was then, like there was a noticeable, there was a definitely a noticeable, uh, a uh, change in your 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 um what is it your demeanor I guess or your your outlook on on how things were in the army and like just 
you you definitely became more vocal about something the things that you thought were were dumb and they were always correct because you're not a dumb person like you see things <laughs> as they are um but we'll get into that in a sec cuz uh, I do, I do kind of want to talk about that a little bit but like so so your parents come over they say you're not fit to be dad take alexis um who uh shout out to alexis by the way uh I meant to say that earlier off to fucking college yeah you're I mean, this is like proud dad moments for sure. Like her, her high school graduation and everything, like now going to college. Oh, for sure. Yeah. She's, uh, she's really grown up and it's sometimes like looking in a little mirror and Mm. it's kind of terrifying. I'm like, Oh baby, how are you going to function? Your your, your dad can barely string a coherent sentence together. Mm. And it's funny too, because you know, she's, she's excelled at school. She's uh, gotten A's and B's in a lot of AP classes. Hell, she graduated with, I think, 18 college credit hours already. And, um, you know, we joke around a lot, a whole bunch of, you know, your mama jokes and just goofy stuff like that. But then she'd bring me these papers and stuff to like, hey, could you mind reading this for me? And I'm just like, where did you learn this fucking language? Like, I know you're smart, but goddamn, what kind of books are you reading? You know, and it's, but yeah, she's, she's doing real good for herself. I'm super proud of her. It's, yeah. I bet you it's crazy watching them grow. Like, uh, my son, he looks exactly like me, like identical, except he has long hair. He's mixed, lucky, whatever. Um, <laughs> but watching him grow, uh, last night we had his football banquet, uh, for the start of his season, which is crazy because, my stepson, he played at the same school a couple years ago. He graduated, and we went through the whole thing, four years of football banquets, and now I'm doing it with my actual natural son. And mm-hmm. I'm standing next to him, and people are pointing at us like, oh, my God, Anthony looks so much like his dad, and his dad looks so much like him. And I'm looking at him like, oh, my God, I was a fucking lunatic in high school, and he's just now starting. Like, I don't know what to think. Like, that's a crazy time for, for a father to, to watch your kid grow into the stages of this is where I remember my life now. You know, that's, that's heavy. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so yeah, that being the case, I mean, I can't relate. Obviously I have dogs, but like, so here you are, you know, at rock bottom, your parents take Alexis away and you're like, fuck, I need to, I need to unfuck some things. Mm-hmm. So let's, let's get into that a little bit. Like what happened? What was the things? So that I actually remember fairly well. Um, I I think she was at work, but I called my wife. I was still on her insurance. And even though she had left, I was like, hey, look, this is what happened. You know, I I need help. I'm I'm ready to go. You know, what, what can the insurance, you know, do you mind if I use it? Can we use it to get me somewhere? And I knew of a couple of places here local. That's not where I ended up going. Um, but she found a place down in Mississippi that was an inpatient care facility. And they had me a bed that I was, they were ready for me, I think in four or five days. So I had about that long to just basically keep myself alive. Right. And I mean, the kids, the, the family, everybody was in a good you know, place at that point in time. So, you know, out of harm's way, et cetera, et cetera. And, uh, so she did the work to get me facilitated or facilitated me to get down there. She drove me down there. It was about a seven or eight hour drive 
outside of Oxford, Mississippi and showed up, got there and checked myself in. So we, um, I didn't know what to expect, obviously, because I mean, the only things I'd seen up to that point were things on like TV movies and I show up and this place is like, it, it almost reminded me of like church camp. Like we stayed in cabins. It was a lot of outside outdoor activities. They actually had a horse barn there because they did like equine therapy. They had a big communal hall essentially for, you know, dining for all of the counselor's offices. They had a pharmacy, stuff like that up there. Um, weight room, some running trails, but yeah, it was just a pond, a big pond in the middle that, you know, on small times you had off, they had lures and rods that people could use to fish. And, you know, they just wanted to create this real calm atmosphere. The first couple of days I got there, I mean, I had to be uh, medically treated for the withdrawals, you know, so I didn't go into seizures or anything like that. So I honestly don't remember the first couple of days. I slept a lot. I remember eating a lot, which was unusual for me. And then after, I think, three days, they kind of assigned me out to the the rest of the group. You know, when I started attending the the group therapies, the lectures, the classes, the all that stuff. And I was there for 30 days and man, I fucking learned a lot. It was, it was an introspective journey for sure. And the people that I met there in that vein, it was similar, like I said, to church camp or even like basic training. I mean, we were all there for the same reason. Um, mine was alcohol, but you know, people were there for all kinds of different substances. Uh, I was really surprised by how big opiates were. I wasn't, I wasn't all that educated on how bad of a problem opiates were in the country at that point in time. So, you know, talking to a lot of them and people who had transitioned from, you know, doctor prescribed pain pills to heroin, things like that. And, but just getting everybody's backstory and hearing where they all come from and, and, and learning. I remember laughing and really, really laughing for the first time and how good that felt because in my fog, I felt like part of my personality was dependent on being under the influence, you know, like my sense of humor or, or my ability to be social or feel comfortable in a, in a group environment. I felt like that was dependent on me having some, some alcohol in my system and to actually get out of that and feel that wasn't necessary. You know, my personality was all still there. That was such a fucking relief that, um, you know, I was able to be funny again and joke and laugh with these people and the other weird thing you kind of talked about a, a bit, but like, like becoming more coherent in that first couple of days, the best way I can think of to describe it, like those first couple of days after I got out of the, um, when I was through my withdrawals and they put me out, they were, were so long. Like they, I, they felt like they were never going to end. And the best way I can describe it was it's like my brain was suddenly switched from VHS to Blu-ray. Like we straight up skipped laser discs, we skipped DVD, we went straight to this high definition, and it was like this fucking overload of just stimulation. And I was like, oh my god, I don't even like I'm seeing colors for the first time. It was wild. Wow, that but, sounds fucking crazy, man. It sounds great yeah. though. Like it was like uh, I'm assuming like going from black and white TV to color. Like <laughs> fuck, man. Like. uh 
I'm so happy that that happened for you. Like uh, hitting rock bottom and just to get to that alone mm-hmm. is a fucking massive accomplishment. That's 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 heavy, dude. I got tears like over it. here. I mean, I think even I think even coming out and saying, <clears throat> "Yeah, I have a problem." Yeah, I, I think a lot of people won't even do that. You mm-hmm. know, because call it call it pride or mm-hmm. you know just I- ignoring the facts or you know it'll never happen to me or whatever other excuse we can conjure up for ourselves. Um, you know, getting to that point and saying, yeah, I'm fucked up. Um, I need help. <clears throat> that's a big, that's a big thing. A lot of people, man, I mean, we, we, we've all seen it in, in the military and, and even, and even people who are, are not military, like nobody wants to sit there and say, I need help. Mm. Right. Nobody wants to admit that they are weak or that they're struggling. Nobody wants to talk about their hardship. You know, and, and a lot of times, sometimes it could be, I don't want to put this on other people. I don't mm-hmm. want them to worry about me. Yeah. Um, I don't, I don't want my burdens to be somebody else's burdens. And, <clears throat> you know, I think we forget in those instances, I think we forget because I mean, Drew, like you called it your, your, your fog. Um, you could, probably regardless of what a person is going through that has their mental state altered, be it addiction or just depression or whatever, you could probably refer to it as a fog across the board. You're not able to think clearly. I mean, those times when I've been down in that hole, like there was nothing clear about what was going on. I, you know, the, the, the times when I've been on, on, on the edge, the last thing I wanted to do was call anybody because I didn't want to burden them. Right. I didn't want to wake somebody up at two o'clock in the morning you know, and, and, and interrupt their sleep for my petty issues, even though I was considering shooting myself in the fucking face. Mm-hmm. You get what I'm saying? Like, in what world does that make sense? Because we all have people that love us, and we all have people that would that would much rather answer the phone at 2 o'clock in the morning than you put a pistol in your mouth or, you know, drink yourself into oblivion or, you know, overdose on whatever it is your drug of choices. And we just don't, we just don't realize that in those moments of fog. And I think, I think as friends, um, to people, it's important that we make that very clear and very known to them. Um, I mean, even then, it may, I, I, I can tell you, like, they, I know there were people that I could have called in those situations. They, they, I, I still probably wouldn't have, you know what I mean? But like, I don't know. It's just, I think as, as, a, as, a, as a friend to people, it's important, I think, that we let them know that we give a fuck. And to ourselves, we got to swallow that pride, man. Um in, in in terms of that, right? Because it, it took it took Alexis getting yanked out from your arms, basically, for you to realize I'm fucked. Like I am not in a good place, and I don't. Those words you never wanted to hear. Um, and so now, like all this time later, going through rehab and seeing everything in in HD, and the colors are vibrant and the feelings are real. The laughter, the belly laughter is real. It's there. And then like that moment, like that moment of that clarity, was that it? Like when, when you, you, your lights came on, so to speak, was that your moment of clarity? You're like, I don't ever want to go back. That was part of it. I mean, obviously you still, cause when, when you're in a facility like that, or even for a few months after, I mean, you're, you're kind of riding that natural high. And eventually that too is going to go away. I mean, you're going to come back and you're going to have to deal with your bills. You're going to have to deal with, you know, your, 
your day-to-day struggles, you know, your work stresses and things like that. But it was a good start. And, and remembering, I think it's real important for me to remember and be able to talk about where I was when I was in those dark places, because that's someplace I don't ever want to go back to. Right. And, and learning since then through different therapies and talking with other people and research, learning about all the tools that we all have at our disposal and learning how important we all are as individuals to your point. Right. And I think people in first responder type categories feel like that a lot, feel like, you know, you don't want to bug, you don't want to be a burden, you know, you want to be a help. You don't want to be a burden. And we get that attitude because we, we want to serve others, right? I don't think there's a whole lot of firefighters, police officers, nurses, EMTs, soldiers that, that are in it for selfish reasons, right? We all have some sort of base belief that we're there for, for service. And what we need to understand and accept and what I've, what I've learned the hard way is I'm no good to anybody else unless I'm taking care of myself, right? And sometimes, yeah, we do need help. And whether it be just a phone call or, you know, just just checking in with somebody every once in a while, you know, sometimes that's all that we need. Um, and the road, the road's gotten easier over the years. I mean, I, I, I'd say after the first year and a half, two years, I actually haven't wanted alcohol for any type of reason. I mean, I still have my good days and bad days. Everybody does. And I'm still addicted to nicotine because I don't think that'll ever stop. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I found healthier ways and help, help and uh, better ways to cope and to get through. Um, and one of the biggest things I've learned is feeling your emotions, right? I spent so long thinking that anger or sadness or grief were, were negative things. They're not. They're part of our human experience. I mean, and we're not able to understand the positive experiences we have unless we have those negative ones to go along with it. So being able to understand those and process them, you know, think, why do I feel this sense of sadness or why am I angry at this? And being able to break those down and identify it goes a long way to actually working through them and making so those emotions are part of your everyday life and not something that you're just reacting to. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, it does. Um, so I I, want, I kind of wanted to ask you when 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 you get out of your rehab and you're back home and you're back to reality, like, you know, what what type of coping tools or mechanisms did you have for, like, or did you learn at at, at rehab for those scenarios, like when, you know, like bills are due and you got to go back to work and you mm-hmm. have to adjust back to life without um, alcohol um, what what kind of coping mechanisms did you have at your um, at your use uh, a lot of breathing exercises um, that's really when I started getting into different kinds of fitness and I mean so and, and I was real blessed in that aspect because you know I was in the reserves I was surrounded by people who were lifting and running and and doing all these so I could I started picking your brain and other people's brains, you know, what's the best way to do this? You know, how do I change in my diet was a big one. Um, but as far as actual exercises, I think the one that helped me the most was, was the, the type of grounding exercise that brings you back to the now. 
rather than getting anxious about something that's coming up or something that's happened in the past, uh, being able to bring yourself back to the now. And the tools I use for that are, if it's real stressful, real anxiety inducing, then you might've heard like the, uh, find one thing that's red, find one thing, find two things that are blue and start picking out things in your immediate environment. Um, journaling helps a lot, you know, being able to get all your thoughts down on paper, what you're feeling and what you're thinking right now kind of helps break everything down so that it doesn't seem so insurmountable. And then uh, music therapy helps too. I like to draw when I listen to music. You know, I'll, I'll put some music on and just, just draw. And it's not even good. Sometimes it's just colors, but you know, it's just whatever I'm feeling at that point in time to really find some sort of outlet for those emotions and for those feelings. And another part of that, I think, and one of the ways I deal with stress now is partly because of what I did in the military, right? Um, there's no problem in my current job that gets me stressed, so stressed out. You know, it, I don't have to worry about people coming home. I don't have to worry about people getting injured. I don't have to worry about, you know, somebody spouse leaving them, you know, all I have to worry about is whether the company's metrics look good. So that, that is just peanuts compared to the stuff that we used to have to deal with, you know, and all it takes is just communication with my, with my management team. So it's not like I'm dealing with these actual serious issues, you know, so that really helps me to kind of put things in perspective. You know, I don't, I don't have to worry about, you know, my direct reports going out on a patrol and, coming under fire. You, you know what I mean? It's right. A huge yeah. Difference. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Tyree, I, I feel like you can definitely relate to that. I mean, fuck being LAPD, you know what I'm saying? Like you, when you were doing that job for 13 years and then, and then like, and, and I kind of, not to flip the interview on you or whatever, but like Tyree, when you, when you, when you left the LAPD, did you see, um, a, 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 an increase in like the quality of life because of the the less stress. Oh yeah, man. Um, like Drew said, like uh, their their work stress, and then when you don't have to deal with that particular stress, especially like police shit, man, that is a huge weight off your shoulders. Like, uh, hmm. there's so many different things that can go wrong with police shit you can get shot you can get beat up by somebody you can get stabbed you can watch somebody get stabbed you can watch your partner get fucked up uh you can watch all kind of terrible shit happen you have to absorb these reports from people and they're having to relive the worst moment of their life and you have to fucking write it down and you don't just hear that once or twice you hear it thousands of times um despite doing all that and trying to help people, there are people that just fucking hate you for -hmm. whatever you stand for. I mean, for the fucking uniform you wear and they fucking hate your guts. They literally want to kill you too. Like, dude, I'm not in Iraq anymore. Give me a fucking break. And then when it's over, it's over and, and you don't have to deal with, and not really deal with, but you don't have to always look over your shoulder just going to the to the bathroom at a restaurant, you know what I mean? Because you're in the in the wrong hood, technically trying to grab lunch in this uniform, and these fucking guys over here see you, and they're gonna call their homeboys, and they're gonna set up an ambush. 
shit like that happens. So to not have to deal with that and to get therapy to deal with that, it's huge. So I have a question for both of y'all then, um, actually, because so, you, you, you know, the the stresses like Drew, like what you're talking about, like the, the stresses in life that you were, were uh, dealing with um, and not realizing that you needed help or at least not accepting help or accepting that you needed help and dealing with that fog and all, all that stuff. And then, um, you know, you, you, you go to, to rehab and you get and, and things are starting to look better. And now you've got to deal with this, like, like, uh, like Tyree, you said, like there's work stress and family stress. So now, now, like Tyree, you're out of the LAPD Drew, like you, your, your life is, 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 is back on track. And now you've got to deal with family stress. Um, how does that compare right to these, to these two scenarios? Um, how does that compare? And then like, do the coping mechanisms, um, that you picked up, do they still work for that? And um, was there ever a period, uh, Drew, for you? Like, was there ever a period during that time where you're like, I, I need, I need a drink, I need something? Like when the stress got so bad and the coping mechanisms really were not working, you know what I mean? Like, was there ever a period where you're like, I need, I need something, I need to get drunk or I need to drink, I need something? No, not well. I, I say that. So after the first two years of my sobriety, me being clean, that all kind of went away. Um, my escape now is basically an actual escape. Like I need to be alone. I need to process my thoughts and I need to kind of wrap my head and come up with a game plan of some sort. Um, so I found those tools, but I do sometimes need that space, right? I can't just, I'm I'm not that kind of person who, if I start getting worked up, I can effectively deal with say a disagreement or an argument right now i need to stop take some space think about it for a time come back rationally calmly etc etc one thing that um i kind of wanted to touch on this too and since we kind of segued into it from tyree's thing so one of the things that i did learn in rehab about our nervous system is the the deregulation and that is one thing that i have Ever since learning about this and looking at what police do, man, I, I cannot thank you enough for what you've done for your community, Tyree, because police unknowingly put themselves in a nervous destruction environment all the time, right? I mean, think back to some of our patrols, you know, overseas, and, you know, you, you obviously get a heightened sense of awareness, right? And, and But then you generally return, you get back behind the wire and, you know, you're able to come back down. So essentially the average person from any kind of event like that needs about 72 hours to deregulate before your nervous system is back to normal and you're, you're ready to take that on again. Police in their day to day are essentially doing this on a vicious cycle and never give their bodies that time to actually properly deregulate. So they are basically living up here when they're supposed to be down here. So that's a destructive thing. And that's a, that's a, why it's not just military or, or, or other civil servants that have to worry about this kind of stuff is, I mean, police probably do it worse than any other first responder group at all, just because it like, like you said, the, the most common everyday 
scenario can turn sideways quick, fast, in a hurry, and there ain't shit you can do about it except react. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I, I, I'm glad you're doing an okay, man, because I've, I've heard of a lot of worse things. You know what? <clears throat> like uh, a lot of cops, I mean, the the suicide rate for police is probably nearly on par with the suicide rate for military, if mm-hmm. not maybe slightly higher because like I've known a handful of folks, cops who've killed themselves on the line. Well, not on the line of duty, but you know, while, while working, while they have the badge, I know a bunch of people who've had heart attacks flat out, like under 35 years old, having heart attacks at their desks and dead gone. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, it's a ton of stress. It's a fucking incredible amount of stress. That's why they offer you therapy for free fucking take it if you're a cop and you listen to this and they got therapy wherever you are take that shit um it, it is heavy but you know you I, I, I always remind myself you know you sign up for that you could have not done that you could have done any other thing on the planet besides that but that's what i wanted to do so here i am dealing with with it you know it, mm-hmm. I, I wasn't the type of person that would tell my wife about the shit that i went through that night or that day because who would want to deal with that exactly like everyone else like you guys are saying like we don't want to burden somebody with my roller coaster of a day because I'm going to have to do it tomorrow or actually I'm on a four day stretch so this is the start of it Um, that's a lot man personally hats off to people who are still police officers doing that because it's not an easy job also anyone else who's dealing with any kind of stress like that because it's all relative Um, your job Whatever it is, you can have some stressful shit going on there, man. And it could be the same thing. It's not life or death necessarily, but in your case, it could be. Like, you could lose your job and then your whole life is done. Like, I get that fully. So, um, therapy, man. Seek it. 100%. Yeah. I, there's such a stigma about therapy, but it's not seeing a therapist, even seeing a psychologist, a counselor, anybody, it does not mean anything's wrong with you. And that's one of the things that from being a young soldier and I mean, we've been there. So y'all understand what I'm talking about. You know, we remember the guys who would consistently go to sick call and they were shit bags, right? Even though they might have a legitimate problem, we didn't recognize that. Right. And, and when you're talking about your, your immediate leadership being, you know, early twenties, hell, I didn't, I still didn't fucking grow up and I'm 40 years old. And, you know, so you're talking about these young, gung ho, 25, 30 year olds, you know, running platoons and they don't know what's required for proper mental health. And yeah, so we all, we all get this ingrained in our heads that it's for, it's for pussies. You know, you're not supposed to talk to anybody. You're supposed to suck it up, drink it down and, you know, take some ibuprofen and do some pushups. That's not how it works. And to your point, yeah, therapy, it doesn't have to mean something's wrong with you. I, I still see therapists on and off just, just to help me improve things about myself I don't like. You know, how to talk to my kids, how to, how to communicate with people at work. You know, it's learning these different things about yourself and, and getting these tools to, to make you a better person. It's not even about healing anything at this point. It's about me having a good, positive interaction with the people on a day-to-day basis. That's what it is right there, man. I go to therapy or I have Zoom therapy on my phone every Wednesday with the with my actual therapist, Dr. Weisserman. What's up? Joel Jewish dude. 
Anyway, uh, like we uncover some heavy shit, man, because like you said, it's not necessarily something that's wrong. I can communicate with my wife now without storming out of the room because I can, I'm not getting my point across. I can talk to my son without screaming at him because I want him to do what I'm asking him to do. Like, uh, I can have relationships with people and it's not one sided. You know Mm -hmm. what I mean? Like that shit's means a lot to me. So going through therapy and, and uncovering that, cause he's not telling you how to fix it. He's just, he's just there listening. Sometimes you just want to have somebody to talk to and they have no horse on the race or nothing. You just bouncing stuff off of this dude. Like I, man, if you could be a fly in the room for my therapy sessions, we skip from one uh, subject to another, to another. Um, and he's just rolling along with it. Like, what do you think about that? How could you change that? Do you want to change that? Why is this something that you even want to talk about now? Like, uh, there's just so many different doors you can open up when you try, man. And it's dope as fuck. Dope as fuck. I love therapy. Yep, right there with you. Um, I'm not in therapy, so I have nothing to say, but uh, as far as, as far as life now, um, like exponentially better, right. For you, Drew, yeah. like, it's like things have turned around. Like you're, you've been at your job for years at this point. Haven't you been there? What? Six years? Yeah. Almost seven. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and you've moved your way up. Cause I remember when you got that job. And, uh, and this was like shortly after, um, you know, rehab and all of that stuff. And, and you were just, you were just happy to have a job and to be doing better. And then if I'm not mistaken, you started out as a temp yeah, a temp yeah. agency. And then like you, you got hired on, like actually hired on through the company. And then like, you like really dug the work and the people that you worked with and you were able to move up and like, like that was pretty cool, man. Cause like to see you. To see you like kind of like, you know, happy to have a temp job to like now like, how many times have you been promoted at work? Three, a couple times, haven't you? Like you, you have four. Yeah, yeah. You've been moving up the ladder. Next thing you know, you're gonna be owning the company. Um, and it really is kind of a like like a, a testament to what you said earlier. Like, you know, um, you could have been a, 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 a ten times better as a soldier had you not been going through what you were going through. And so now like you're, you're kind of, you know, being that now, like you're being, you know, 10 times better in your personal life. And, um, I mean, it sounds to me like your relationships, um, are, are better. Your life, your quality of life is better. Um, you have better coping mechanisms. You enjoy your work. Um, and, uh, things with your daughter, um, are better than ever aside from her going off to college. <laughs> um, uh, so, I mean, it, 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 to me, it just sounds like, like, I don't know, man, like things are like all the way on the up and up. I mean, no. Yeah. Yeah. They really are. And I mean, I, I, I owe a lot of that to, to the people that I've chosen to surround myself with. I mean, I've also learned that it helps to be positive. There's, I know it sounds cliche, but there, there's almost always something good to be found in any circumstance or any scenario and being able to identify that. I mean, you and I have talked quite a bit about what our 
military careers could have looked like, you know, how we could have helped people more had we known certain things or changed certain behaviors. Um, but being able to change my mindset from, you know, training soldiers, which I loved and enjoyed, but now I get to do that with, with civilians. You know, I'm a, I'm a supervisor where I'm at now. I have 22 direct reports. And even though it's not the same scope as, as mentoring or training soldiers, it's still I get to mentor and help facilitate train these direct reports. And some of them even to the point where I get to have conversations like this with them. If they feel open enough to approach me with something that's going on in their lives, then I can be that person to listen. And I can tell them what I've been through and I can help talk to them and, and tell them my experiences and you know, I'm not going to tell them what to do or make decisions for them, but, you know, I, I can show them that there are options and that itself is super rewarding. Um, I've gotten to see multiple people, you know, get promoted and start their own pathways up the company or even outside of the company. And I feel that's the kind of good that I can do for people at this point. I mean, there's, there's so much more I would like to, and, you know, being here talking to you guys on a public setting, that might even be a good start for that. But but really, it's just maintaining that positivity and just acknowledging that there is beauty in the world if you choose to see it. I mean, it, it's not all gloom and doom, no matter what the fucking news is telling us right now. You know, there's good, there's good shit out there. And I think all in all, people, people are positive and they want to be happy. So just finding that in everybody around you and being able to, to let them bring that out in themselves, that's, that's what life's all about, man. And I'm really glad that I've, that I've found that in, in myself, the people around me and just, just humanity in general. So, um, I have one more question. It's a two part though. And I think we should probably, um, to get on with your day. Um, so what advice would you give to a, um, people going through what you were going through and B, people in the orbit of somebody who is going through what you were going through. Um, and the reason I asked that second part is because like I said, like you, you, you managed it well enough that like, I, I didn't realize like how bad it was for you. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like, cause you, you were there, you showed up, you did work, you know what I mean? And like, you know, like I, I, I just, and maybe that was just me being blind or oblivious or, or whatever, or too focused on something else. I don't know. But, um, you know, like if I could go back, I would like to do a better job at identifying some of these things with you and, you know, not just like letting you go through that on your own, you know, so to speak. Um, and so like, what, what would you, what would you tell people going through what you were going through and the people in their orbit? I'll start with the the orbit part you know, the, the outsider looking in, and that is to kind of like what I said about that colonel asking me, be direct and ask those questions, but don't, don't ask it or present it like it, it's, it's, it's your thoughts or opinions, right? I mean, we've heard it in the, like the, the suicide awareness classes over the years, you know, you need to ask somebody, are you thinking about killing yourself? Don't say, I'm, I'm concerned you're going to do that. That comes across as a me problem, right? Now ask it, ask it like, how are they feeling? What are they doing? What are their thoughts? Because that's going 
going to cause the introspection that they need to maybe make that change. Um, for the people that may be going through something like that, pride is the worst thing you can feel, right? And and to Johnson's point earlier, to Kevin's point earlier, that there are people who care about you. You know, there there are people out there who give a fuck if you're around and if you're around in a positive way. Um, don't ever think you're alone. And there are avenues and ways to reach out for help, even if you don't know anybody direct. Um, basically don't give up and just remember there, like I said, there is beauty in everything. It just, you just have to know how to look for it. All right. I got one Kevin, uh, one Kevin, one question for Kevin before we get out of here. That yeah. fucking shirt, man. What is that shirt like about? It. The shirt you're wearing. Show us the shirt. Describe like it. The crayon. It is crayon. Um, it says beast on it. I don't know if people can see it. Mm. Um, uh, so, uh, my best friend, uh, has, has a son and he, uh, drew this for me. It says beast and, um, in, in, in crayon. And then I put it in Photoshop and then put it on a shirt. The whole point behind it. Um, I go to the gym, right. And I, you, you know, some people go to the gym and there's, there's certain types of people you see in the gym. We see it all over social media. Ooh, Jim Coulter, I hate it, right? It's big alpha bros and uh, lions not sheep or however the fuck it goes. And I'm the wolf in the jungle fighting bears. I don't know. It's just it's this big, dumb, like, I'm a beast. And it's just, you shut the fuck up. No, you're not. Like, people who go to the gym and call themselves warriors, I don't know, man. People, I think there, there, there are way, there are way more people out there doing some more hardcore shit than being able to bench press four times your body weight that, to d- deserve the title of Beast of Warrior. And so I just, I get a kick out of gym culture. So this shirt is a slap in that in that face, so to speak. I wanted a child to write it, and I wanted it to be in crayon, and I wanted it to look ridiculous because that's how I see those people, and that's why I have the shirt. Sweet. And where could the uh, people listening and watching, where can they find that shirt? I honestly don't even remember the, the website on it. It's a oh, bonfire. Man. It's a bonfire website. I think if you go to my Instagram with underscore Valor underscore, um, there's a link in that bio to it. I, I really don't remember the link. Um, bonfire.com slash search with words, I think. I don't know. It's on there somewhere. Um, I, I really don't push it out. Um, because I just, you know, uh, when you create something like you, you, I think you worry about like how well it will be received and then people, you know, judging you for that. And I I do worry about that kind of stuff and I wish I didn't. Um, because I, I I honestly, this is one of my favorite shirts that I've ever had made. I think it's hilarious. Um, and I'm, and I'm super glad that, you know, uh, my best friend's son who calls me uncle Kevin, who, so he's, he's my nephew um drew this for me i just i just i i it's one of my favorites that i've ever had made i've been designing shirts for a while and i i, I fucking love it it's got my little my with our logo on the back um hey that actually reminds me drew you're creating something right now how is that going uh very slowly very slowly yeah, yeah but uh it's it's coming <laughs> um well i i think i told you this when when you told me about it uh but we had Kat Karamitros on the show. She's a former Marine drill instructor and she's written a book similar to, uh, not, you know, a, a children's book. 
<laughs> and um, I need to reach out to her to find out like how, how and unless you have already got like a plan for publishing it and, and all that stuff, but um, nope, no plan. I'm open to any kind of help I can get. Yeah. Well, definitely whenever you get finished with it, um, let me know and we can, we can, we'll, we'll put it out on the show. Cause... Right back on. No, we need to have you on because we need to talk about the, the book writing process because that's, uh, that's a show on its own. Well, you're doing, so he's, he, it's a, you're doing all the art for it. Yeah. Um, you're doing the whole thing, uh, front to back, cover to cover, as they say. Cover to cover. Yeah. How, how do you feel about it though? Like, are you, are, so, and, and I, I, so whenever I do things like the shirt or whatever, like I'm, I'll create it, I'll do this, and then I'll be super hesitant about t- t- telling anybody about it, right? And so I kind of wonder, like you say, it's going. So the process is going slow. Is it, is it going slow because, like, once you get to the fin- the finished product, now what? You know, are you worried about like, you know, all that? To be honest, it's going slow because I'm too, I'm too critical of myself. I've redrawn the first three pages about six times each, and I just need to just accept the fact that that one of them is going to look good and I just need to finish the rest. Cause every, every time I would sit and look at some of my finished drawings, I'm like, no, this needs to be different. This needs to be changed. I couldn't put this out to the world. So I need to just, just do it. And, I agree. Uh, yeah, but it'll, it'll get done. I, I honestly, as shitty as it sounds, I'm kind of afraid it'll fail. Yeah. And I just need to get past that, man. You do, you do, because it won't fail. Because um, that's the thing, man. And I, gosh, <clears throat> um, there's eight billion people on this planet, man. Like your story that you're telling in this, like, will definitely appeal to a lot of people. It's just creating it mm-hmm. and then getting it in front of their faces and being like, "Look at it! <laughs> this, <laughs> this is this. my cat." That's all it is, man. <laughs> just got to get it out there, put it in people's yeah. faces. So hey, yeah. So yeah, we're definitely gonna whenever whenever you do get it created, um, uh, yeah, we're we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna tell people about it. All right, I appreciate that. Yeah. So on that note, uh, it's time to end this show. It's been great. Thank you so much, Drew, for coming on. Oh, thank y'all very much for having me. It's it's, it's been a great talk. I, I'm glad it glad it was with you guys. Right on. Uh, thank you for listening to Before I Forget. Please like, listen, share, subscribe, watch. Check out beforeiforget.com. I'm sorry, before I forget the podcast.com for our show shit. Uh, Kevin, you got anything? Just that I, you should, I, you, I need to update that website. But yeah, go there and do that. And Drew, again, um, thank you so much for coming on. Uh, like, I, I hope that this show is, is able to reach um, enough people, all the people. But like Tyreen like to say, even if it helps just one person, um, that's enough. And so we really appreciate you coming on and talking about this stuff, man. Yeah, thanks, guys. Yeah. So, again, thank you. Please like, listen, share, subscribe, watch. And, uh, Kevin, you got anything? We're on loop. Yeah, we're good, man. <laughs> All right. See you later. Take care.